You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Marketing News Canada. I'm your host, Ted Lau, podcast host, agency owner, and I'm here today with Crystal King. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. So Crystal is the HubSpot Academy social media professor. Her popular marketing courses are taken by tens of thousands of learners around the world. She's a career marketer. She's also a culinary enthusiast, novelist, and a tallophile. Ooh, I'm excited. So Crystal, how's it going? Good, really well. So you were saying earlier in our pre-call that you're all things Italian and that you also write books about Italian chefs and stuff. So definitely want to dig into that. Before we do, just maybe tell us a little bit about yourself because your LinkedIn tells me that you're quite diverse in your interests and your career. So how'd you get started and where are you today? Yeah, so I um, actually started my career um, during a recession. And I had originally thought I wanted to be a journalist, but then I switched my majors in school. And then I got out of school and couldn't find a job. There was just nothing to be had. I ended up doing human resources for a GE Capital company, an annuity company that no longer even actually exists. And I realized that I'm not probably not the right person for human resources because I just am, uh, I, I, I connect too closely with people and you need to have a little bit more distance, I think, when you're in an HR role. And I, I couldn't, that was just not going to be the right one for me. So I thought, okay, what am I good at? I'm really good at networking and connecting with people. And I just was really, um, I'm, gr- I'm good with words. That's one of the skills that I, I feel extremely confident about. So I thought, okay, let's go into marketing. Ended up working, starting my marketing career by finding one of the first cross-country jobs with Monster, which used to be called Monster Board. And I, instead of sitting on the floor with a newspaper and a highlighter, I actually went online and I set up interviews in Boston. I was living in Seattle at the time and managed to land a job as an associate assistant manager at a small software company that was doing basically artificial intelligence. But this is like in 97 or so and nobody so really the first terminator yeah right it was not quite on that level but people were really freaked out about ai back then because we were recommending um, entertainment choices to you based on your behavior and your patterns and it would learn what learn like what movies you liked and what books you liked it would recommend like-minded things and people did not know what to do with that at all and so the company didn't do too well i ended up selling and I started a, a kind of a long career of working in startups for the next few years, most of which no longer exist. So the first part of my resume looks like I might have made it up, which I swear I didn't. And then ended up landing roles in PR primarily and working for companies like Sybase and ended up at CA Technologies. When I was at CA Technologies working in PR for one of their business units, I realized that reporters were not answering their phone. They weren't listening to, they, they wouldn't answer their phone. They weren't reading email. They weren't reading press releases, but they were on Twitter and they were watching YouTube. 
And so I basically convinced CA to open up their closed gates because they had um, had a lot of fraud at the time and, and they had were very nervous about employees saying and doing things that would be publicly incorrect. So they had locked down all of their, uh, their communications to the outside world. You couldn't go to your personal email. You couldn't go to most websites. And so I convinced the company, hey, you know, social media is going to happen and this is the way it's to go. And I created my own career as a social media director, probably a good five to 10 years before it really became a job. And so that was really how I got into social media. I started doing that because I needed, I couldn't, couldn't get to reporters. So, and ended up working in a a couple other organizations after that. I, I ran social media for Keurig and came to HubSpot about four years ago. And now I just teach social media. I teach courses. I create courses that are free to take. And anyone around the world can come to HubSpot Academy and learn about marketing and sales. And my courses are all about social media. So yeah, that's kind of the trajectory I've had. That's fantastic. I mean, funny that you went for journalism. I I did a comms degree, a communications degree uh, up here in Canada. and, And journalism was definitely a thing that a lot of my friends pursued. But as we all know, it kind of met its demise a couple of decades ago. Tough role to be in right now. Absolutely. So with the fact that you were able to pivot and kind of be on the other side to reach journalists and reporters, that was very interesting. Now, when you're teaching these courses, it's all online, correct? Yeah, everything's online. There are videos that are interspersed with quizzes. We have certifications that um, deliver a certificate at the end and you take a test to receive that. The certificate that I created is for social media certification. It's high-level strategy, end-to-end understanding of how to create a social media strategy, everything from content and crisis communication to social media listening. And I think at the last, I just checked in with the person that manages some of the education partner programs that we have. I think there's almost a thousand graduate and undergraduate courses that use it as part of their curriculum in different parts of the world. So that is super exciting for me because when I first started creating that course, it never occurred to me that I could reach so many people with the things I teach. And so to me, that's like extremely rewarding. That's super great. I mean, all over the world, where do you see the common challenges when you have Folks from all over the world, you got different cultures, right? And social media is used worldwide. And differently worldwide. Oh, differently worldwide. So what are the what let's let's first talk about the common challenges. And I'd like to then kind of go into the distinct differences in, in the cultures. But maybe let's let's go with the common challenges that you see globally. Yeah, I mean, this is something that HubSpot Academy is really working to ramp up is translation into other languages. Right now you can close caption and then do some translation in that regard, but we're actively hiring professors in a variety of regions so that we can actually translate or have them create courses that make more sense for those regions. So that's a huge challenge for any organization, trying to understand how to how to globalize, how to translate material in different places, and then figuring out how relevant certain pieces of content are in different regions. We're still learning, of course, and that is growing. That's an area that is of great importance to us right now, where we've been hiring all sorts of new professors with various different languages. We just hired an, another German professor today, for example. So yeah, so that's definitely a challenge is figuring that out. 
on the subject of like some of the differences, it's different countries tend to use social media in different ways in the sense that they may have the same platforms, but they have a different kind of priority or the way that the users gravitate towards certain parts of them make a difference. So for example, in Japan, Twitter is the number one platform. It is what everybody uses. Whereas in Canada, Facebook is um, the number one platform by a very big margin, where in the United States and other parts of the world, TikTok is really starting to see a meteoric rise upward. Facebook still leads in most countries, but they've had a lot of challenges in the last year and a half. And um, different countries, some countries have banned being able to use Facebook. I think China is one of those. And But there's also some small differences. I think it could be, don't quote me on this one, but I think it's in the Philippines. If you are on a social channel and you like something, it doesn't necessarily mean that you um, actually liked it. It just means you saw it. You're acknowledging that you have viewed it and not necessarily that you agree or disagree with it, which has huge implications for marketers. It means that you can't really place a lot of value on likes in the same sort of way. And I do think that in a lot of global situations, that is true. Somebody has viewed something, they might like that it was posted and shared, but not necessarily agree with the sentiment. So it's interesting. And it's hard to understand what a lot of those differences are unless you've been spending time in those regions or you are able to connect with people in those regions as well. Now, I uh, wanted to talk to you about TikTok in particular because your latest post on LinkedIn talks about home cooks. You know, they find an antidote to blandness on on TikTok videos. You're a foodie, obviously. and But then how do marketers actually use TikTok to their advantage? I know it's having uh, quite the rise in the United States here in Canada. It's gotten its fair share of exposure, but it, we're, as marketers, not a lot of us are really taking to it yet. So any tips and maybe some, some free education today about how to use TikTok? Sure. Well, if you're using Instagram Reels, you can easily use Instagram TikTok. I mean, not Instagram TikTok, but TikTok in general, because they're very similar. It's basically it's Facebook decided, okay, we need to clone this and put it into Instagram. So a lot of people will use TikTok and just sh- uh, save those videos and then reshare it on Instagram. So you can double up on some of your content in that manner because the audiences are often very different. The other thing is, is that you should really consider being on TikTok because TikTok has some of the best organic viral reach. It's really easy for somebody to suddenly have 20,000 likes on a video in a way that it's really hard on on Facebook or on Twitter because of the way the algorithms work. And the other thing about TikTok is that those videos are easily shared on all sorts of other platforms. So even most people watch a lot of TikTok, but don't really realize they're reading, they're seeing TikTok because they're seeing those videos on Twitter or they're, you know, opened up their Facebook. And so for a a brand to start something on TikTok, it can have a lot of additional reach into other places. The other way that brands are starting to use TikTok is you can do educational things. You can do like mini commercials. There's lots of cool influencer stuff that you can do. Um, a lot of brands really began getting into TikTok by doing contests. Um, and particularly in the B2C space, you saw, I don't remember the hashtags off the top of my head, but like Taco Bell did a whole dance thing or different like 
food food chains have done a really great job of doing these dances that come, that are on a hashtag and you might have the food in the video with you and you get a chance to win something and it's fun and it's interesting and it people love that and there's all these like new interesting things about how some brands are looking back and I'm um, doing things with their old commercials but like repurposing them on TikTok so for example there's, I'm trying to think of the one, the Skittles ad is what I'm thinking of. So Skittles, a while ago, they had these ads where if something, you touch something, it would turn to Skittles. And so um, there's these TikTok videos that they've done with influencers where like there's some makeup or something, you touch it, it will turn to Skittles or they'll touch a person, it'll, they'll turn to Skittles. And they've done all these little series of fun videos of things turning to Skittles. And and they're interesting and they're fun and they harken back to some nostalgia that people may remember from old commercials that Skittles used to do. And so there's there's things like that. We notice that a lot of people are just doing small uh, educational types of things. There's a doctor, for example, that on TikTok, I, I can't remember exactly what kind of practice he has. It's definitely way above my head, but he has a following of other doctors and students in the medical field that follow him. And he has quite a, a very large following. And what he does is he gives like little sound bites on certain medical tips and he gets thousands of likes on these videos and they're super technical and they're really not a dance move. But so there's a lot of applications and there's a lot of ways to find your followers. So I think everybody should just jump in and try it out. It sounds like it's the purest way of organic reach. Right now. Where does the whole targeting happen or is there targeting? Or are you just literally coming up with fun concepts and hoping people share? That's where all the hashtags come in. You need to hashtag correctly. There's some cool, you can check hashtags on sites like hashtagify or all-hashtag.com, I think. And you can see what hashtags are trending in different channels like Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. And so having hashtags on there helps following people and then they may follow you back help, but also talking about your channels and other places, telling people on Twitter, Hey, you know what? We started a TikTok. Suddenly you'll have other people that join. And when you have lots of people that suddenly start following you, it's just like the other channels, you'll be recommended because people are starting to follow you and you're, you become recommended to other people that follow similar channels. So it's, it's a, it's a slow upward climb for everybody. But then once also you start to get great content and people like your content, they'll start following you for more content. It's also a cool place to do live stuff. You can do a lot of live things on TikTok. So it's another channel that brands can try to do maybe little live things at conferences. Or I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity there and brands just kind of need to jump in and start using hashtags and um, seeing what works and go with more of what works and, and shift with the things that don't work and stop you doing that. So fun, engaging content, educational yep. content, hashtags. There yep. is no targeting or lookalike audience or... Well, if you're doing ads... There, mm -hmm. there's definitely more targeting. I, I'm not the best person to speak on the ad side of things, but they do have um, targeting. They are you can you can work with particular demographics and things like that. And they have a, a, several different tiers of advertising that you can run with different ways to advertise into the TikTok audience. 
But if you're just posting organic content, you can't target that easily. No. What about the other channels that are out there that are still prevalent, though they haven't seemed to broken the stratosphere, as it were? You know, you got the Snap, you have Pinterest, you have all these other programmatic ones out there. Do you teach those ones too? Teach courses on on those platforms? Hopefully, I'll be developing some courses in those areas in the future. I personally think Pinterest is one that if you're a retail brand, if you're a B2C, you should you shouldn't ignore it. Um, that is, it is, it's still an incredible place for people that are doing DIY, that are looking to, you know, revamp their homes, that are looking for books, that are looking for tangible items. So Pinterest is still a great place um, to be. And they are seeing um, ongoing growth as well. And I do think that some of their ads are very, very targeted and have some, some really great results for people that are using those. You still have Snapchat. If you are somebody that has are marketing to parents um, or particularly marketing to kids, um, which is you know sometimes tricky, or teens, you know Snapchat is still a place that you can do fun things there. It's I, I wouldn't say it's 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 not dead by any means. It's just it's another platform that you can consider. But is it losing momentum? I mean, you you got TikTok, which is just taken off like you said. Yeah. And then it seems like Instagram has has taken a lot of the 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 steam and the the momentum out of Snap. But Snapchat's still around uh, and it's still growing its users. So how do we I don't know, what do you suggest to folks when there are the all these platforms that have, you know, bajillion uh, monthly active users? You know, how do you pick which ones do you teach? So it's really about figuring out where your audience is at. That's the first thing I teach in any of my courses is understanding who your buyer is and and where they are at. Um, I recommend before you really start doing advertising or before you pick a platform, or even if you're on platforms and you're trying to understand what's working or what's not, just take a step back, figure out where you know what your demographics actually are. You know how old is your audience? Are they mostly male or female? Get reports in the industries that you're trying to get into. Um, Start looking at your competitors and seeing what types of things are resonating for the competitors. Ask your audience. Do polls. Find out where where they shop. Find out what magazines they buy. You can even tap into focus groups. There's companies that will conduct focus groups and bring in people to ask questions about your your brand. Those are all great places to start because once you understand what your audience really is, then you can understand the kind of content you need to create to attract more people in your audience. And you can understand which which platforms will make the most for you. So you might, you know, if you're marketing to young adults, you might find that Snapchat is a great place to be, or you may find that Twitter is a rising channel for certain demographics of people in certain regions, for example. So you really have to know who your buyer is. It's really hard to answer that question as a blanket answer. It depends on the the company and their buyer. Well, absolutely. I mean, audience analysis is is a key. Yeah. In terms of your courses, what's what's your favorite? What's the the funnest thing that you teach on a regular basis? Oh, it's so hard because when I'm in a course and I'm writing, you know, I'm scripting it and I'm starting to film it. I'm just so deeply involved in that that course, and there's. And, I, and I'm discovering new things about the course, about the, the platforms as I do that. And then, of course, as soon as I launch it, 
not something changes, it's inevitable, right? But I think I just finished a LinkedIn course. So LinkedIn for businesses. So understanding how to do your pages, how to really understand how to reach your audience with organic content. I go over the advertising a bit. So that is a course that I just finished. I'm super excited about it. Launched about a week and a half ago. I really liked doing YouTube a lot. Um, The YouTube course that we did, I learned so much about YouTube that you can't just by watching it. When you're creating for YouTube, it's a very different thing. And YouTube has so many possibilities and so many people are nervous about doing YouTube because video is not easy. It's a little bit more complicated, but you can do a lot with just a microphone and a camera and some creativity. And um, what I think a lot of people don't understand is that there's so many people that are interested in watching content. And YouTube has a lot of ability to help you skyrocket um, some awareness for the brand. Um, but people don't really understand how to use YouTube. And so they shy away from it and, and figure that it's not for me or I need to pour lots of money into it. And that's really not the case at all. So doing that course was super fun because I was able to hopefully break it down for brands to be able to look at this course and say, okay, this is actually manageable. There's a lot of opportunity here. I can, I can harness some of that. So to me, that was really rewarding to do as well. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, during the pandemic, I basically fell in love with YouTube. Yeah. I know that, you know, I have, maybe we're a little spoiled. We have all the streaming services under the sun and we have cable. And yet I still felt like there was nothing to watch. So I started going on YouTube, I started having a vegan diet earlier this year and I was trying to figure out what to cook. So I I started following a couple of folks. 
you know, I was doing yoga as well. So I was following this uh, couple breathe and flow. Uh, his, her name is breathe. His name is flow, whatever, but they're <laughs> awesome at their yoga thing. Um, and I even got this, uh, old Chinese dude to, you know, teach you how to cook restaurant style Chinese cuisine. That's and I thought that was really, really interesting. I just wonder, you know, how do these people continue with that energy? Because I don't know that they're all monetizing. Actually, a lot of them are, are pointing to Patreon. Like, hey, if you really like my channel, you know, come and subscribe to Patreon. Do you talk about how to monetize, you know, if you want to get that, you know, 14 million followers or whatnot? Yeah, I do talk about that in the course and what the different tiers are and how to think about reaching those. Really, the answer is create lots of content or at least consistent content. You created one video a week and you did that consistently and they were great and they were interesting. You'll build your followers. You'll start to to grow that pretty easily. And it does take a bit of time. But once you pass certain thresholds, suddenly it becomes a lot easier because YouTube will start to share your content more regularly in other channels. You also have the opportunity to have that content show up in other people's feeds. And there's, um, I can't remember exactly what the threshold is because it's been a little while since I did that course. I feel like it's a thousand or so followers is when you can start monetizing. Don't, again, don't quote me on that, but um, you can start monetizing at a certain level. And brands may think, well, I don't want to show other people's ads in my feed. And so they may um, think, oh, I'm not going to monetize that. But the the truth of the matter is, is that YouTube has changed their, their rules recently. And now you don't actually have a choice in whether or not you can block other people's content in your feeds. So some brands may just shy away entirely thinking, well, I don't want my competitor's ad to show up in my stuff. And so they, I think that's a missed opportunity because there's still so much virality that you can have with YouTube. There's still so many um, users that can find your content that, that if an ad does show in your stuff, it's not it's not detrimental enough to warrant not using it in my opinion and you can start monetizing that as an extra you know channel into your brand why not do that well yeah and i was thinking that just to your point the ads while they're there i still sometimes you know as i'm watching this cooking channel or whatnot or a comedian on there the ads i'll just i'll wait kind of like just regular tv you just kind of yep. sometimes you know, air, clock it out of your, your brain or you just skip the ad. Yeah. And so I, I see your point there. What about on the advertiser side? You know, because you do have, you know, people like me are like, ah, I'm trying to block this out. Maybe because I'm a marketer and I just block out advertising as much as I can. I have like my own pop-up filter do, in, right? in my head. I think we all do. We have 53,000 ads a day. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> for sure. I'm pretty sure that actually it's probably not, That's scary. Yeah. So how do you, like, if it's not organic, is YouTube something that you would suggest for advertisers? Because definitely, it's, it, absolutely right. But how do you how do you make content that is an ad that is going to get people to continue watching it? Because I definitely have seen ads where I wanted to skip, and I've seen ads where I'm like, okay, I'm going to stop and actually watch this entire. I've done that. I've actually stopped. Yeah. No, I'm not going to skip the ad. I'm going to watch the whole thing because it was of interest to me. Yeah. Or sometimes like there's really boring brands that have great ads. I just saw an Accenture ad today that I watched the whole thing and not a purchaser, but I ended up watching all of it, you know, and the key there is that you have 
30 seconds. And this is true of even organic videos that you do. In that first 30 seconds, you have to get enough of a hook that people will want to keep watching. Either you tell them what they're going to see so that they stick around, or in the case of like ads, you have really great, interesting content that's 30 seconds in that, that you can pack as much as you can in, in 30 seconds. Even if you have pay for an, a minute or two minutes of ads, you still need 30 seconds of where the bulk of your stuff is is because people can skip ads at the 30 second mark. And so they're, they're waiting for you to finish that 30 seconds before they hit that, you know, move forward button. So if you can create fun, interesting, entertaining content for something with a cool fact that can grab people right away, that's going to be your best bet. Well, actually, a lot of the times it's it's five to seven seconds. Now yeah. I tell my team, hey, any videos that we make, we need to hook within that five, seven second mark. Because if that's we fine. don't, it's not going to, people are just going to skip it. Just I'm thinking based on my own personal habits, user habits. And so if you don't hook them in, in that time frame, well, too bad, so sad. I want to move on to your being a novelist, right? So you're a, a fiction writer primarily about Italian chefs. So uh, fiction, books, food. I mean, these are all some of my favorite things. So tell me a bit about about that adventure. Yeah. So when I was young, I always wanted to be a writer. Part of the reason I'm a marketer is because I could write. I can, I can still use a lot of my writing skills. But along the way, I went back and got my master's in critical and creative thinking, and um, which was great for marketing. But it also really spurred me to realize, okay, what I what I also love to do is write books, and so I um, developed a series of exercises for writers in progress that are based on brainstorming and exercises from the business and science world. But I started shopping this proposal for this nonfiction book around, and all these agents said, "No one knows who you are. You need a platform. You need to teach. You need to write, or someone needs to write a book. Write these exercises." So I started teaching, which you know eventually led me to HubSpot. I've taught at a bunch of different universities in Boston. And then I thought, I should write a book. What would I write about? And I love food memoirs and books about food. So I thought, I'm going to write a book about a contemporary chef with a magical set of knives that traveled through history. But I needed an origin story for these knives. And I came across this tidbit about this ancient Roman gourmand named Apicius. And his name is on the oldest known cookbook. And he died in this totally, completely messed up way. And I thought, I'm going to tell the story of how he got there. And it just seemed more interesting than the, the contemporary chef that I was going to write about. So I wrote this novel about the life of Apicius. It's called Feast of Sorrow. And a lot of it's very true. He was a real person set in the time of Augustus and Tiberius, and which was a really tumultuous political time. And so totally full of food and feasts and some of the earliest foods. French toast, for example, is not French. It's actually something that was ancient Roman. So there's Roman toast. Yeah. And they love donuts and fried food. And um, and then my second novel is about a Renaissance chef, this guy named Bartolomeo Scopi, who lived in the 1500s. And he had a cookbook in 1570 that was the best-selling cookbook for almost 200 years after he died. And that's where you see the first pastas. You see the word pizza in print for the first time, even though it was like more of a Napoleon sweet thing. You see a recipe for fried chicken, which is crazy in 1570, but it had cinnamon, cloves, and nutmeg in uh, the spices. So very different, lots of pies. 
he was somebody that worked for several popes and cardinals. And we don't know much about his life. So I got to make that part up. And so great fun. And I'm still working on other crazy novels about food and about Italy and the history of Italy. And food and Italy are they're so closely entwined um, that it's it's easy to to combine those two things. And I get to go to Italy for research, so that's a good thing too. That's fantastic. With that cookbook that you're talking about, what's it called again? And how do I get my hands on it? So for the first book is called Feast of Sorrow. The second book is called The Chef's Secret. Both books, um, the first book is just simply, the cookbook is called Apicius. You can find that on, there's a, a translation by Sally Granger from the Latin and on Amazon or um, that's probably your best bet on um, actually um, just because of when these books were published and where they were published from. And then Bartolomeo Scopi, the L'Opera the di Bartolomeo Scopi, the works of Bartolomeo Scopi, and that you can find as a translation by Terence um, Scully, a food historian. Um, but if you want to go to my website, crystalking.com, I actually have digital cookbooks you can download that have recipes translated by chefs, by food historians, and I've done some recreations as well. So that's a super, super fun thing is being able to create those cookbooks and um, and then give those away. So those are available for download on my site. Awesome. So what is what is the your favorite um I don't know, Roman times or 15, I, I can't remember what time you said, but like ancient food. I just want to, I'm, I'm now salivating a little bit. Tell me there's, some of those, like, I never thought that would be good. And it was actually pretty good. So in ancient Rome, everything was fish sauce. They put it on everything. It was called garum and it's made by fermented anchovy guts, essentially. And if you've had a Vietnamese or Thai food, you definitely had it, right? So that's something a lot of people don't realize is that the fish sauce in those cuisines are ancient. They're, they're, they're made almost in the exact same way today. You can get gara made in Italy called colatura, um, which is made from anchovy sauce, but you can just go and buy a red boat, you know, something um, off the shelves in the Asian section of your market and, and have something similar. But my favorite recipe from ancient Rome is this, it's called Parthian chicken and Parthia is in the area of Iran now. And this chicken recipe has fish sauce in it. And I don't like fish. So that is something that's really hard for me because I'm a super taster and it's very overwhelming. But you use just a tiny bit and it gives it an umami salty flavoring. Mm -hmm. And it has asafetida, which is used a lot in Middle Eastern cooking now. But that was a herb called laser or silphium that went extinct in ancient times. And um, Emperor Nero was rumored to have had the last sprig of it. But there's a version that they believe is very close to it, which is asafetida. Um, and it's a it's a yellow, stinky resin. They call it devil's dung or hing in Indian cooking because it's devil's a, dung is that what yeah, you just call it? Stinks. And you put this on food? Yeah, when you when you uh, when you roast this like powder, it get, it turns into a garlic flavor. So but before it smells like poop. Well, no, but it just has this crazy, horrible smell. You know, it's like you have some in your house, you, fruit, you, and that's a Syrian oh, yeah. thing, right? Well, hey, look, I'm I'm Asian, and I have yet like to really dive into that durian. <laughs> it makes me nervous, definitely. Yeah, exactly. And then, so where have you traveled in Italy, where you're just like, I got to write another book about this region. Oh, everywhere I go, I'm like, I need to write a book about that place, and I end up doing that at some point. So. I love Rome. Rome is where my heart is. Um, it's the place where I, I go and I feel like I, I should be there always. 
I went to Urbino, this little town and on the East Coast, or close to the East Coast near um, Pesaro. And it was actually the capital of the Renaissance at one point, even more so than Florence, which a lot of people don't realize. And there was one of the best museums of Renaissance art that is there. And it's where Raphael was born and he um, grew up. And it's this little hill town in the middle of nowhere. And it's just enchanting. And I wish I could go back tomorrow. <laughs> so I would, I would suggest that people put that on their bucket list. I think you should start some kind of YouTube channel where you just cook ancient Roman cuisine. <laughs> People got that covered, actually. Oh, do they? Really? Yeah. Oh, man. Sally Granger, she is the one who, who translated the Apicius cookbook. She has an amazing YouTube channel where she uses the ancient implements and she cooks like you might have cooked over this fire. And uh, yeah, she's amazing. So I highly recommend her channel. Okay. All right. Well, so we're going to do a little bit of rapid fire here. It's just a way for our audience to get to know Crystal more than we already have. It's usually fun and eclectic and whatnot and silly. So you ready? Sure. We'll start out with something easy. Favorite place you've been to in the last five years? In the last five years? Well, definitely Rome. That would be on the top of my list. I would say my favorite place is probably this little weird garden of monsters in Bomarzo, Italy. It's an hour north of Rome. I'm actually writing books set in this this crazy garden right now. So I'm really immersed in it. But it's full of statues that were carved in the late 1500s and mythical gods and goddesses and big crazy monsters. And it's off the beaten path and a lot of people don't go there. And it's so cool and interesting and really different. Wow. What is your favorite type of pasta? I love cacio e pepe. So the what is that? Cacio e pepe is basically like parmesan and and, uh, and pepper, really mostly. And, and what kind of noodles do you put it on? Put it on um, usually bucatini or spaghetti or something like that. So you can use all sorts of noodles, but um, usually um, spaghetti or bucatini is more traditional. Funnest thing that you've marketed. Well, HubSpot Academy. Yeah. HubSpot Academy is so much fun. I love my job in ways that it's really hard to explain. I get emotional when I talk about it, actually. It's just the best. It's the best job I've ever had. I love what I do. I love teaching social media. I love the team I work with. HubSpot is an incredible, caring company, and they know what they're doing in marketing. And I've learned so much being there. So, yeah. One thing that people don't know about Crystal. Well, if I tell you, then you'll know it, right? (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe most people don't know. What would most people don't know? Um, I don't know. I read like a thousand words a minute, 800 to a thousand words a minute. Really? Yeah, I read really fast. You can crush a book in a day? Easy. Easy. If I fly cross country, I usually will, can read... If I fly cross country and back, I, I can probably read two or three books in doing that without much. Problem. Can you retain it? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> wow. My, my, uh, COO does that. And I just have no idea. I, mean, I, I have to sometimes read pages twice to like absorb <laughs> it all. And here you guys are crushing two or three books a day. Well, that's why I also like social because it's so much content. It's so much information. I can consume that really quickly. So video that you're streaming right now. 
Oh, I actually don't watch a lot of TV or video. Strangely, I don't. I play a lot of video games. That's actually something. That's something people don't often know about me. All right, tell me what's what's the the thing that you're playing right now? Well, right now, Final Fantasy fourteen is really hot because all the World of Warcraft players aren't are like defecting. But I've been playing that for a long time. So I play that. I play Elder Scrolls. I play Guild Wars. I like a lot of the story rich games. Those are and questing type stuff. When you're reading books, do you listen to music? Um, I can. I um, I don't like music with words if I do, but I read a lot of a lot of the reading I do is for bed, so I don't tend to, but I can. Yeah, it doesn't distract me. Are you? Uh, do you do audiobooks at all? I do when I was commuting, but now I'm mostly working from home, and I will probably continue to do so. But if I have a long commute, I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. Yeah. And the audiobook for my first book in particular, Feast of Sorrow, is so cool. It's the weirdest thing to have somebody narrating something you wrote because it's like listening to something you're familiar with, but yet it's totally brand new. It's really cool. Is it is it weird though? You're like, I wouldn't have said it like that. Or it was no, kind of... Oh. He had voices for the characters and I was listening in my car on the way to work and one of the characters spoke for the first time and um, the narrator um, gave him a big, this character, a big booming voice, which I described him having, but I didn't really ever hear it in my head. And I just burst out laughing in the most, because it just was not at all what I expected. And it grew on me and it turned out to be perfectly okay. And everybody else that has listened to the book did not have the same feeling that I did, but it, it was just so unexpected. It was really interesting to hear people's interpretation. It was an interpretation of these characters and I loved it. It was, it was really cool. Favorite nonfiction book could be in marketing, business, whatever. Oh, that's really hard. I do like a lot of the Malcolm Gladwell books. I think they're fascinating and really interesting. I just finished reading The Bookseller of Florence by Canadian Ross King. And I had the incredible opportunity to interview him for the Toronto Library, which you can go and see the recording of that. This was just last week. And he wrote this book, The Bookseller of Florence. It's all about books and the history of print and illuminated manuscripts in the Gutenberg um, press and the Gutenberg Bible. And it's absolutely fascinating. Wow. That's fantastic. Okay. Well, any last things that you want to tell our audience? You know, we're a bunch of marketers here that let listen on this podcast. Um, any tips, tricks that you want to leave with us? Yeah, there's something that I've been thinking about today. Like right before I came online, one of the things that I ran across was on Instagram was this Bon Appetit magazine had posted an image of a yoga teacher, a young black woman who is not a skinny girl. And the comments on this post were, some of them were really awful and racist and hateful. And what was really frustrating to me is that amongst all this, there's all these people that are saying, hey, Bon Appetit, what are you doing? Aren't you taking care of this? Aren't you moderating your comments? Why aren't you, why, this, this woman that you're profiling that has done amazing things does not deserve this. You know, why aren't you, why aren't you doing something about it? And so they, I think they put up a post that said anything with racism or negativity will be removed, reported and deleted. But as far as I could tell, they, they were very slow to do it or it wasn't happening at all. And so what I'm bringing this up to say, if you're going to wade into topics that 
are could be you know controversial or sensitive. They're about race, equality, body image. If they're political in nature, you have to be really willing to back it up with your values and be ready for action. You need to have a plan in place to moderate and to manage negativity and hate. And don't jump on a bandwagon because you think it's trendy to do so. Like clothing manufacturers, every time there's pride, you know, right now, you can go on every clothing site and you can buy all these clothes to make them money. And and that is what not what this world needs, in my opinion. So if you're going to go into those areas, go into it to back it up with values and action and and be ready to have a plan to to take care of the people that you're trying to promote. Amen. I think that's a, a really a good point. I've, I've interviewed several marketing experts and they say very much the same thing. You know, we don't want to be virtue signaling. Uh, we have yeah. to have a responsibility around what we do and what we say and do it in an authentic manner. So, I mean, thank you for saying that. And before we go, just maybe if you want to just tell us where we can get those those books of yours again so that we know. You can get them on, you, I'm sure your local bookseller can order the books. Definitely go on Amazon. I don't know if it's available in Canada, but it's worth trying bookshop.org which um, helps indie booksellers buy books so that it's not all coming from Amazon. But you can find, also you can find links on my website, crystalking.com. Awesome. Well, Crystal, thank you very much for your time. Love the insights. I got to figure out how long I'm going to stay vegan if I have to try this Parthian Uh, chicken. I know. As I was talking, I was like, "Mm, these books might be (laughs) really... No, it's okay. My family is not. And I mean... I'd try it probably down the road. We'll see. And then devil's dung, is that? Yeah, hing or devil's dung or asafetida is also Uh, the more common name. Interesting. Well, thanks for your time today. And everybody, thanks for another great episode of Marketing News Canada. And we'll see you guys next time. Thanks, Crystal. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio, thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editors, Travis Jeffers and The Podfather. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 